once you build a successful payment system, it's actually the fraud that's the difficult thing to fight. And there's this amazing description that I put in the book. Well, somebody asked like Max, like, what is PayPal or something to that effect? And his answer is it's really this submerged system for fighting fraud and for fighting bad actors. And we have this little payments layer on top of it, right? And there's a lot of truth to that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Jimmy Sonny, writer and best-selling author of The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. If you've talked to me over the last month, chances are I've recommended you read Jimmy's book. In fact, I think every early stage fintech founder, operator, and investor should pick up a copy of The Founders, where Jimmy does a brilliant job at detailing some of the most interesting years of PayPal, from day zero in 1998, all the way down to 2002 and the eBay acquisition. This book will transport you to the days when Elon Musk, Max Levchin, Peter Thiel, David Sachs, Rolf Botha, Reid Hoffman, and a long list of PayPal Mafia characters fought day in and day out to build one of the most influential fintech companies in the world. And some of my favorite highlights include how they actually found product market fit, pioneering fraud fighting techniques that are still widely used by the industry to this day, fiercely competing against eBay and especially relevant these days, fundraising in the midst of the dot-com bubble. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jimmy Sonny. Well, Jimmy, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you here uh, all the way from Brooklyn, New York City. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a sign of the times. We, we, we live in the same place, but are actually doing this using technology and Zoom. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You could be in China for all I know. <laughs> that's, true, that's true. Or an undisclosed location, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so, Jimmy, um, this is a very fitting podcast to have you on uh, because you very recently published an amazing book called The Founders, which is the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. And if I may add, these are entrepreneurs who are shaping the world, uh, not just Silicon Valley. So it's a fascinating story. I've already told you this. I've started recommending it to everyone, particularly founders in fintech. Um, and so I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that very kind endorsement. And I would add that you know I'm excited to talk to somebody like you, because our paths did not cross until this book. But the the very things that engaged me about this story are the things that you unearth with the founders you talk to and the writing you do. And so there's like a big part of me that's like, oh my God, I'm I'm so excited for this because you know, I this is gonna sound a little odd and I'm just kind of trying this on for size, but the work of actually making money work is super interesting, right? In, in different contexts and environments, like how that actually happens can be very dramatic and fun and like crazy and Shakespearean. And, and I, I thought like I knew I sort of got it right. But then I listened to your work and I'm like, oh no, Miguel gets it too. Like he's this, he understands how nuts this can be. Right. And now there's a sort of, even in the, in the sort of driest payment story, there's a hero's journey that's embedded within it. Right. Um, so I'm just, I'm really super excited. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, uh, honored to have you here. Maybe, uh, Jimmy, tell us maybe a little bit about yourself, uh, a brief intro, but also, you know, why did you decide uh, to write this this fascinating book? Because, you know, the, the story of, of PayPal, a lot of people know about it. It's been covered, but you took a, a, a slightly different angle. Yeah, you know, it. Um, it's funny, these things, you never, you, you sort of, as an author, you're kind of always fishing for stories, right? You're sort of always like, like, I think... I I have a Google Doc. <laughs> this is 
slightly embarrassing, but it's it's literally just titled like books I should write. And all it is is like a repository so that the cloud is storing my ideas and not like a notepad that could burn up in a fire, right? Because I'm like terrified that if I have a notepad that it's somehow something bad will happen and I'll lose it and like there's no way to recover it. And and so I think, you know, a lot of authors I know are like this. You're sort of always wandering around the world, like looking for great stories to tell. And like the very condensed version of, of why uh, for me, I grew up as a reader. Like my grew up in libraries. My parents came here as immigrants to, to the United States. We didn't have any money. But they had a library card, and we would just – my brother and I, I can still vividly recall, go to the library. We had this big red bag. It's like red plastic bag, and we just fill it. I, I grew up loving books. Um, they were just and, – and what was funny was like it wasn't like I was like reading you know books about business when I was five years old. Nothing like that. I just – I loved Garfield comics, and I loved Encyclopedia Brown. I loved the Mossflower and Matameo series. So I just loved books. Fast forward, when I became like a young adult, I started to think about like whether I could write them. I had some successes with a couple of the books that I'd done before this one. And I like, like with a lot of my projects, I just kind of like threw some bait out into the world to see like was there room for a story not about like everything that the founders of this company and the early employees of this company did later when, you know, meaning – YouTube, Yelp, LinkedIn, SpaceX, Tesla, the things everybody knows and covers and writes about. I, I wanted to sort of get to this, this question of, look, we're now 20 years removed from this very intense experience you had building the company that is known as PayPal. And my bet was that there were stories there that weren't told, people that never got the spotlight, and just like a, a kind of narrative that had never really fully been explored and I, I, that's, that's sort of what launched it is, is I'm not a, I'm not a tech journalist. In fact, in some ways, like I came to this very much as an outsider to even the writing about business and technology. Like my last books are not business books, but what motivated me was this sense that historically 1998 to 2002 in Silicon Valley is a super interesting time. It is the tail end of the dot-com boom and the beginning of the dot-com bust. And this leaves basically like this indelible imprint on an entire generation of people who are involved in technology. And at this one company, you had several hundred people who created something, saw it grow, made it successful it survived, it still exists, and they took those operating lessons and moved into different fields of endeavor, right? Whether it was film or tech or whatever. I sort of wanted to know what was in the water. Why, what what happened then? And then also for readers, I wanted to like, I don't know, like I wanted to <laughs> call it like a cash in on 90s nostalgia. I mean, I got, you know, like I got to sort of like read Wikipedia entries about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and about all the TV shows and about Y2K. So some of it was also like I was a product of these years. I was introduced to computing during these years. And it was like fun to go back and like, you know, sort of like remember the era of dial-up modems. Yeah, a lot of purchasing power of uh, people with that 90s nostalgia. Right? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> if, if Chuck Klosterman can make a whole book about it, maybe I can just do the payments piece of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and one thing that I could relate with, with your work was that you were interviewing some very busy execs, some of the most sought-after entrepreneurs by reporters, by, by everyone, right? And you actually got their time uh, and you got to, you know, hear their story and then you, you got them to tell you their story. Maybe talk about that art of interviewing uh, very busy professionals uh, and, and extremely successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, and I hope that, you know, I'll give a little bit of like a longer, like medium sized answer to it because it wasn't anything that I knew going in. Um, just for context, my last two books were about dead people, right? So I had not actually like written about alive people before. And it was a different, it was a different form. It was a whole different process, right? I think that, look, from the get go, because the project was a book, 
it had a different feel for people when I would come into the room than if I was there to write a tweet or an article or like a magazine piece or like a podcast. Like, like I, I got, I got the feeling sometimes that they sort of saw me like as a curiosity. Like they, it was almost like, oh, who's this, who's this guy who loves books and like wants to do a book? How funny is that? How quaint is that? You know, like it's, it's almost like I pulled up in like a horse and buggy, right? <laughs> and I parked it next to all the Teslas in the parking lot, and then got out, and they were like, oh, look at him, he should be wearing a tri-cornered hat, right? Um, and I'm, I'm joking, but, but I'm sort of directionally accurate. I think, I think they thought of me as somebody who, like. I think a fair question that they might ask is like, given what they are doing in their day-to-day lives to invent the future, why would somebody want to spend five and a half or six years going back and diving into this story? And from my perspective, that was great because they thought of it as a little odd. They were actually willing to have the conversation. I think that if I were going to write an email to Roloff Botha to ask him about Sequoia Capital, or if I were writing an email to Max Levchin to ask him about a firm, I would either get no answer or I would get passed along to somebody who was a more formal like comms person, right, for those companies. But I was writing about this very specific thing they did. And my kind of my kind of agreement was I have almost no interest in what you did after 2002 and 2003. I am really resolutely focused on 1998 to 2002 and maybe some of like what led you to this company in those years, meaning some of the things maybe in college or or in your younger years that led you there. But that was a big part of it is I, I think I got through the door because I was somewhat of an unlikely candidate to get through the door. That's sort of thing one. Thing two, I'll tell a story. One of my favorite writers is Michael Lewis. And in interviews that he has given about Moneyball, one of the things that he says is, you know, he wasn't a sports writer, but he was suddenly in like baseball front offices and locker rooms talking about baseball. And part of the reason that it worked is because no one like he wasn't going to he, he was this weird book guy. And he was also asking questions that the sports writers didn't ask. So so I'll give you an example. You know, I was really interested in the ways that Max Levchin's early life influenced his decision to do technology. So we spent a lot of time talking about what it was like to immigrate to Chicago from Ukraine. And it was a, in a, a hugely rich, evocative, super interesting story, lots of like great angles. But I think if a journalist had 45 minutes to an hour with Max Levchin, it would be very low ROI for them to ask about that. They would have to get something related to a firm and they would have to get like, you know, how do you plan on managing the changes in the markets and this and lending standards and this and, you know, stock price, all that stuff. So I had the luxury of asking them about a subject that was re- like, like sort of like Michael Lewis asking about baseball. Like I was going to ask them questions that no one else asked them. I remember in my final interview with, with Elon, I asked him about one of his dearest friends who had passed away. Um, this gentleman named Greg Corey had passed away. And I remember thinking like, wow, like, you know, losing a friend is a really big deal. And it happened for him at a, at a relatively young age. Like this was a really, you know, I think uh, Greg Curry was 51 or 52 when he passed away. And I actually started my interview by saying, look, I want to ask you about something. It's like a, not to do with technology. I, I had read that this person, Greg Curry, really influenced you. And I would love to know more about him. And it was the most amazing response because like it was so clear that the death had affected him. It was so clear the imprint that Greg left on his life. But if you are a CNBC journalist or a Fox journalist or CNN, whatever, and you have time with Elon, you're not going to ask about this, this guy, Greg, right? And so I had that benefit. And then and the last thing I would say is, is more process and, and structural. And I'm sorry for the long answer, but I assume this is helpful because a lot of people listening are probably trying to send cold emails. They're probably sending cold emails to busy people. Um, I always recognized that I was asking for the most valuable commodity that all of these people have. Whether it was someone who was in the news or just a, a not not in the news, we're all very busy, right? Like we're all hugely busy. Our inboxes are overloaded. We have too much to do in any given day. And this is like top to bottom. Everyone's life is just feels like it's gotten busier. If that is true, like if those are the table stakes that everyone's insanely busy, you have to be respectful that you're asking for this insanely valuable commodity, so I would take steps to make sure that I was approaching them with some measure of respect. One way I did that, which was like, like cost me time and money, but whatever it worked, uh, is I would basically say yes to whatever time they offered at any time, right? No matter where I was in the, in the world or the country, like I just said yes. And then I would like figure out the travel later, right? Meet, meet them where they are. Yeah. 
I, I always assumed that I was only going to get one meeting with each person and I would come in prepared to ask my highest value questions so that I never – like I wasn't there to be buddy-buddy. I wasn't there for follow-ups. I wasn't there for dinner. I was there because I'm a person doing a job. I'm trying to get this story. So I would go in just like really prepared like to the point of like insane like you know kind of like if-then statements on a set of questions to know that I might only get one hour with Peter Thiel and I've got to maximize the value of that hour and that's okay. And then the last thing I would do that I said that, you know, you and I have talked about a bit. I just did an insane amount of preparatory work before the interviews to make sure that I had looked at their answers to the very common questions about PayPal so that I could move past those common questions into some of the ones that are a little bit more surprising. And so that just involved like, honestly, like a lot of YouTube time and a lot of like listening to podcasts and taking pretty detailed notes on, okay, three times Peter was asked about the fundraising process for PayPal. Here are the answers he gave. Is there anything about this that I need to know? Yeah, like pretty well covered. Like there's no holes here. I sort of see the trajectory and I have the paperwork to back it up. Cool. But he wasn't asked about this other thing. I want to ask about that. So I made sure that I was like trying to maximize every minute of time possible. And I look, I don't think I always did that. And honestly, part of what was amazing was that sometimes I'd get them started talking and they would just keep talking. But I never came in trying to assume like, oh, they're going to be with me for years. I like I always lived with the fear that like the minute I was done, they were like, I don't want to talk to that dude again. I was lucky that didn't happen. But I never went in like expecting more time. I always knew that what they were giving me was valuable and that I should maximize it. And I did this with everyone. There are people no one's ever heard of that they'll learn about from the book. And I treated those interviews the same way I did the interview with with someone like Elon or Max or, or you know, Peter Thiel. It was it was be prepared because you may never get this person on the phone again. And that's why this time matters. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And, and like one thing that I do try to do in every interview that I have, and it's not easy, it's exactly that, is ask a question that they've never heard before, or at least not recently, not in the recent interview, right? uh, so they can have a, a more updated answer. Um, switching gears a little bit, you know, what? one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed this book is, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs, fintech entrepreneurs, and I, I hear about the problems they, they're having. And then I read your book and I see the same problems, right? And, and this is a, a fintech that was founded basically 25 years ago, right? So let's talk a bit more about the business side of what you uncovered uh, for example, you know, PayPal didn't have product market fit from day one, but they worked to find it. So what, what did you learn from specifically, you know, their, what it means to find product market, market fit and how did they approach it? Yeah, it's, it's to me one of the most interesting things in the book and, and in my research, um, and and but let me let me attach actually a very important disclaimer, which is I wrote about a really specific company in a really specific context. I think there are some generalizable principles and lessons that come from it, but this is not a how-to book, right? It's not like ten steps for making your own PayPal. Um, nor should it be. Like I think books like that actually won't work because each of these companies is sui generis. It's created at a specific time to try to solve a specific problem. That said, you know the question of product market fit is as true for you know as is true for like the railroad in the early 20th century as it is true for uh, electric cars today. Like you have a product and you wanted to find a market. And I wanted to understand that for PayPal because it was a really specific kind of engagement and a specific kind of problem they were solving. Here's what I would say. I walk away from the experience of having looked at this thinking that PayPal didn't find product market fit. They earned product market fit. Right. So, and I'm exaggerating a little for, for literary effect, but I don't think I'm actually exaggerating by much. It, it's funny because when you use the phrase find product market fit, it makes it sound like it's something that's just like lying around, like, like waiting to be picked up, you know, like a dollar bill on the sidewalk. But actually, what, what happened in the PayPal case is really interesting. They built originally uh, a, a technology to beam money between cell phone, uh, between Palm Pilots. Um, so basically using the infrared ports on Palm Pilots to, to transfer money. 
they built a companion product that was emailing money, meaning like, okay, if you don't have a Palm Pilot, you can still email money and I can send Miguel 10 bucks if we're at lunch using his email address, right? That product had real promise. They didn't quite know how they'd get product market fit, but what happened is they it was done for them. There were a whole host of buyers and sellers on a platform called eBay, an auction platform that at that point I believe was about five years old. It was a public company. eBay had done many, many things well. They had built the definitive auction platform for the internet. They had not figured out how to reconcile payments, meaning when you and I completed an auction, like if you were selling a Beanie Baby and I was buying it, you and I still had to figure out exactly how we would complete the last mile of that transaction. There were a bunch of very good reasons why eBay avoided owning the payments part of that business, but it left an opening for a company like PayPal that had created a lightweight email-based payment system to solve that specific auction payment problem. And what happened is that, as David Sachs described it to me, he said, you know, we noticed that we were like getting traffic from this place. We went on eBay, we typed in this, we typed PayPal in the search bar and all of these auctions listing auction listings popped into view. And we were like, oh my God, there was some disagreement at the beginning. There were people on the team who said, why do we want to be the payments provider for eBay? That's insane. Um, like, like they were pretty dismissive about it. Frankly, even years later, they were a little bit dismissive about it. But what they quickly discovered is that they, they had achieved in this very tiny way, product market fit. Here's why I say they earned it, because as soon as they recognized this, they took a series of steps to aggressively understand that customer base, cater to them, build products, tools, and services that would goose their growth there. They would do everything. I mean, I think I heard this amazing story once where this person said, you know, we knew we, we, knew we were succeeding because at one point, our emails to do the payments for the auctions would arrive before eBay's email indicating that the auctions were done. And they were like, that's how aggressive we were about just trying to win that specific corner of the market. And so to me, it was a super interesting product market fit story. And there's a ton of tangents on what I just described, but it was the case of this was not a problem that the founders and earliest employees of this company had. Someone else had a problem and they used a tool that this company created to fix that problem. But then the founders and earliest employees were like, oh my God, this is a big opportunity. We've got to go own this. And a big part of my book is just about how did they do that? Yeah, it's funny how that works because today you talk to entrepreneurs launching uh, marketplaces and fintech products are in their roadmap in the not too distant future. So now it's very obvious that as Alex Tosig from Lyspit calls it, that payments are the motor oil of marketplaces, right? Um, and, and, and part of this also, you know, how they found uh, this, this very important conclusions of what was working was their obsession with um, the customer, right? And, and that, that's something that it's clear in the book, you, 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 you know, you mention it and, and demonstrate examples in, in many chapters. Maybe talk about that a little bit and how that customer obsession led to some really good insights and, and decisions. So I think it's the difference, you know, the more I've, I've kind of even, you know, it's interesting when you write a book, you have all this thinking that you've done about it in a compressed period, right? So for me, that compressed period was, let's say, the last like five years. And then you keep, you you know, you can't ditch the book. Like you're still thinking about all the interviews and like your, your subconscious is thinking about like what you learned and how to think about it. And one of the things that I realized even in the last month or two, the book's been done for a while, but even in the last month or two, I realized how incredible it was just the degree of focus on the end user and on the end customer. And I say that only not as somebody who builds tech products, but only as somebody who's like a user of them, right? Meaning like somebody who's like using Google Docs or using Spotify or whatever. The the level of discipline and, and passion and kind of just like these are our people that PayPal had as a part of its earliest like life cycle, like it's incredible. I'll give, I'll tell a couple stories. I interviewed this designer named Ryan Donahue and Ryan was just a great storyteller and, and had a lot of lessons that he learned from PayPal. And at one point, I think like a halfway or three quarters into our interview, 
he mentioned to me something about customer interviews. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, oh, yeah. And somewhat nonchalantly, he said, oh, yeah, I interviewed like 200 plus customers during the course of like doing design work. And I just I, – I sort of stopped and I said, that's amazing. Can you tell me more about that? And he said, yeah. You know, the company would pay for me to fly like around the world and I would sit in people's living rooms and I would like get insights from them and I would watch them use the product live at their homes or in their workplaces or whatever. And it became a really powerful source of understanding of like how is that product actually being used? And it, it blew me away because this is a digital company being built at the height of the the you know the dot com era and certainly into the into the bust. And you have a, a designer, right? A designer, meaning somebody whose whose sort of job it is to like create wireframes and who who is sitting shoulder to shoulder with customers, like watching them click their mouse to see what they do, right? I mean, what an extraordinary thing. And and I, and it would be it would be insufficient if it were just that anecdote because it wouldn't speak to the point. The other kind of series of things that I saw, I had this massive email archive um, that was shared with me, like a several gigabyte archive that basically gave me like a day-to-day window into the company. And every day there was an email sent out that was a big collection of customer comments on web forums. And it was sent to the whole company, meaning like all at paypal.com or all at x.com, which was the corporate name of the company. And it was like, it was color coded. There were ranking indicators and they were seeing firsthand what customers thought about the company or its products or about an update or about a release. And so I had that. I was like, wow, like even if you didn't read the emails, you were at least quote unquote hearing from customers every day, right? Based on what this person was sending out to the full list. So that was like big thing number two. And by the way, some of those comments are hilarious and they definitely made it into the book because they're like a real source of comedy because uh, people are funny and like, you know. Um, and then and then I would say the, the, the last thing is I interviewed a lot of people who worked in customer service in Omaha. So one of the untold stories about PayPal or lesser told stories is that its customer service operation is based in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's a huge pain point for the company that is solved by establishing this massive customer service presence in Omaha that is still around to this day. I interviewed people and I would, I would, I remember one interview, I'll never forget it. This woman I interviewed said, you know, one of the remarkable things is as she, as she put it, she's like, we would tell Palo Alto, meaning like headquarters, like we would tell Palo Alto about some problem on the site and we would leave the office. And the moment we got back to work the next day, the problem was already fixed. And so there was this just real focus on like, if a customer complains or has a problem, we're not just going to like, like kind of send them a polite, like, thank you for letting us know. There was this kind of instant spring into action around fixing these issues. And I'm, by the way, I'm sure that they got a lot of things wrong. I know they did. I saw the documents, right, about complaints. But I think what when you have a customer service agent sort of sharing the story about how amazed she was at how quickly code deployments happened, I thought of it as just unbelievable. And I heard, by the way, I heard story after story like this, like where, and then I saw PayPal customers defending PayPal when other people would attack it. And I was like, that is when you have turned your customers into advocates for your service. And it was amazing. And it was a byproduct of a culture that emphasized this kind of obsessiveness. It emphasized the end user. Like they could get a lot of things wrong, but they were going to cater to the end user as much as possible. Yeah, I, I love that. And that that's a question I try to ask a lot of my guests about their approach to listening to the customer. And so, you know, oftentimes it's uh, similar stories. They, they they talk to the customer, but one thing that comes up amongst great founders that are running multi-billion-dollar businesses is they also look at the data, right? Because they say the data can tell you sometimes things that the customer is not telling you, and and sounds like PayPal was doing both. Yeah, there was. Look, you're you're dealing with with fiercely analytic minds. And so it's not an anecdote driven company. And I hope I didn't give that impression. This is in no way a company that's no, just like shifting in the winds. There's a huge amount, a treasure trove of data. And actually, it, your question makes me think of this one comment from someone, this guy, Mike Greenfield, who's a fraud fighter, who said essentially 
that the the earliest part of the company's history, like let's say the first two years, were basically I – mean, these aren't his exact words, but it's sort of a paraphrase. He said, you know, we needed the data and insights about fraud that like rapid customer growth allows. And so because we had rapid customer growth, we had a really, really, really big data set and we could work with that data set to fight fraud. It's also the case that a big data set allows you to make little adjustments and then see what happens. Let me give you an example. One of the places I spent a lot of time doing a lot of thinking and interviewing, particularly with uh, David Sachs, who uh, was was one of the leaders in product at PayPal. Um, I asked him a lot about the shift from a free product to a like like to to a premium product as an option to of what they called a forced upgrade, which they affectionately referred to as the FU um, because they had to upgrade their users in order to generate revenue. Um, and I, I wanted to understand that because they did what was very difficult in the internet in that era, which is shifting people from, hey, this thing's free and we've got bonuses attached to it to, no, this category of users are going to be charged for this service because we're providing a real service and we need to make money. We're a business. And I wanted to understand that. And part of what David played back to me, and even I would say Peter Thiel played back to me as well, is, you know, they would make slight modifications to the product and then very quickly discern what effect that had that it had on growth rates, on attrition, on, you know, everything, bonus payments, referrals, et cetera. And so it was not that they were like listening to one person's kind of angry screed on a message board and making changes. They were capturing user sentiment that way. They were also very carefully looking at every slight shift of what they called the dials. Like if you shifted the dial down one way or another, what would happen in another corner of the business? And I remember just like being amazed that over the course of, I think it was an eight-month period, PayPal goes from a free product that you get $10 for signing up to a, a premium product that has very specific pricing tiers. And this is at a time when there's not a ton of literature about like freemium models and like how you do these upgrades and like what's the way to gate users and not and all that. I mean, like these are, these are things that are, the literature isn't even out. I don't even think the word freemium was available or in use at that time. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it because it was a data driven company, but it had this, it had it was able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They were looking at data very rigorously, but they were also hearing from users directly and had almost like what you might call a kind of intimacy with users, right? In fact, best best exemplified by the fact that the person who is one of their like frontline customer people, this guy Damon Billion, who went by PayPal Damon on the message boards, he got marriage proposals, right? Like the users were sending him marriage. So yeah, I, maybe that's like a sign of like a healthy, like it's like one thing to like have good growth and low burn, but if you're like head customer service person is also being uh, asked for his hand in marriage, like maybe you've built something that people want. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned fraud fighting. Uh, you know, speaking of things that have not changed and possibly have gotten even worse. You know, every single fintech is dealing with with fraud, and and in fact, not, obviously not just fintech, the entire financial industry. Uh, but in, in fact, now there's a whole category of companies that specialize in fraud fighting that did not exist back in the PayPal days. It was all done in-house, and a lot of it was actually pioneered by Max Lefchin and some people in his team. Um, would really, really love to hear more about what you learned of Lefchin's you know, role specifically in fraud fighting. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's hard to tell or say that certain things in the book are your favorite or, or kind of are like the places that most engaged you. Um, but I think if I had to make a list, like I'm pretty sure fraud fighting would be at the very top of the list. So, and, and part of the reason I say that is because it is in some ways, and, and I had even Elon say this to me somewhat directly. He was like, you know, the actual mechanism of building like a digital system to do payments is not very hard. Meaning like, and he, he was sort of signature, he put it in his like signature humor. Uh, he was like, you know, you would just move one thing from one database to another thing in another database. And he goes, it's super dumb. Um, and, and, and he's, he's right at that level, but then his sort of next order and, and the other team, the team's next order challenge was once you build a successful payment system, it's actually the fraud. That's the difficult thing to fight. 
And there's this amazing description that I put in the book. Well, somebody asked like Max, like, what is PayPal or something to that effect? And his answer is it's really this submerged system for fighting fraud and for fighting bad actors. And we have this little payments layer on top of it, right? And there's a lot of truth to that. The difference then and now is that back then, digital fraud is really in its infancy, just as the internet is in its infancy and internet commerce is, is in its infancy. And so you have this challenge of like, when like, here's an example, a fraud fighter told me that when they would call like a district attorney's office or a US attorney's office, they often had to spend time explaining exactly what was going on, right? Like that, that, that they had to explain the mechanics of financial crime in order to make these people who are law enforcement officials like kind of take action, right? Um, because this was new. It was fundamentally new. They were also dealing with foreign hackers and foreign mob rings, right, who were basically using – like the, what you might call today like phishing schemes, but also just like like schemes in which they were creating fictitious eBay uh, transactions in order to siphon money. They were they would uh, often like uh, put up a fake auction and then not send an item, right? And there were sort of like varieties of fraud. There were some that was sort of more minor, some that was more major. But it is in fighting this successfully that the company becomes like actually has a hope for the future. I, I interviewed a bunch of people who are in and around this particular issue. And to me, it's, it's, it's interesting for a few reasons. Here's the biggest one. By almost any reasonable estimate, like this should have been the thing that killed the company. Like it was so much red ink and they did not have the ability to raise more money at that time. PayPal closed a big $100 million round of financing in March of 2002. And for those of your listeners who were like, you know, of stock picking age at March of 2002, or maybe just a little younger, like that was the, the bloodletting started then, right? The bottom fell out of the markets. And that affected a company like PayPal because their ability to raise money went away. It vanished overnight. One of their board members said as much at one of the spring board meetings. was like, you're not going to have the ability to raise more money. So that increases the pressure to solve this fraud problem. But it's the thing that should have killed them. And what it turns into is like the company's signature success. It's the thing. They have patents that are filed in this direction. They have some of the most innovative technologies that come out of the company are built to solve this. The first commercial application of the CAPTCHA, like that came at PayPal. And it came in as a response to wanting to fight bots who were creating fake PayPal accounts for bonus payments. So if you are ever frustrated having to find like a fire truck or a bus or a boat, like you can thank PayPal for that one. Um, so, so to me, it was, it was that. It was that this incredible difficulty became this remarkable strength. That's reason one. Reason two is it's the place where technology and human intuition met very powerfully. So yes, you have tools like the CAPTCHA, but once you find a bad actor within the system, you still need people who can go and like diagnose that, build a case file, contact law enforcement, interface with those people, testify in courtrooms, all of which PayPal had to do during this four-year period. And so to my mind, it was also this place where like human like agency meets like technological capacity. Like I, I thought of it as that like spot in the Venn diagram where if it were just tech – you can't fight the fraud. And if it were just human beings, you'd just fight it too slowly. And so it was the perfect marriage of technology and humanity. And I met the people who were human fraud fighters, and I interviewed the people as well who were building the tech tools. And it was kind of amazing to see the ways that they solved this big, big problem. Yeah. Now, one of the things that really stood out to me, I mean, so PayPal is not a small company by any means, uh, despite recently actually uh, stumbling. Uh, its stock has has fallen significantly. Still, it's at about $100 billion market cap. It's a very global company, you know, almost everywhere in the world. I mostly use it to, you know, pay for things that are international. Um, so it's a big company, but... Given that they got a head start 25 years ago, I kept thinking, like, shit, th this could be mu so much more, right? Like, we have Chime, which is the top neobank in the U.S. PayPal could be Chime, right? So, you know, I, I wonder what are the reactions to that thought that you got from, uh, you know, the, the, all the members of the PayPal mafia that, that you interviewed? <laughs> You know, I think to to be fair to to like kind of everyone listening and and to the folks at PayPal, like I didn't 
you know, I really didn't spend a lot of time studying or looking at, you know, contemporary 2021 or 2022 PayPal. Um, I felt like it would have been a outside of like my scope B, kind of way outside my realm of expertise uh, and C, you know, it was, it would have been comparing apples to oranges in some way, right? Like I, I was looking at this, this very nascent payment startup that started out doing mobile security uh, and broader financial services evolved to becoming an email payment system. And then, you know, that grew and, and then it grew to this big thing because it found success with auction buyers and sellers and then it IPO'd and then eBay purchased it. So I don't do much of the postmortem, like the, the afterlife. Um, I, I did trace the history between kind of the acquisition by eBay and then the decision to spin out PayPal again as a public company. So this is a part of the story that actually people forget sometimes is that in 2002, PayPal was a public company uh, in, the, in the spring. It, it IPOs uh, in early 2002. Then it's acquired by eBay. So it becomes like a wholly owned subsidiary of this other public company. Then in 2015, it is spun back out based uh, based in part, I think, on pressure from um, investors, including Carl Icahn. And so it's spun back out into a public company. And, and I think the challenge of answering your question is that in each of those iterations, you're describing a completely new place, right? And so to ask the question is almost, I don't know, it feels like you would have a tough time answering it because... I got to believe it's hard enough for a public company like PayPal to manage customers, relationships, and payments in 190 plus countries across however many time zones. And the 2022 challenge is very different than the 1998 challenge that Max Levchin and Peter Thiel are facing. And so it's part of the reason I like sort of didn't go into that that area. What I will say about it, though, just to, just to not leave listeners somewhat unsatisfied, is that I interviewed, you know, Peter and Max and Roloff, uh, and actually David Sachs as well. And one of the interesting things that they all shared with me that they shared independently, I like wasn't leading into it, they would just say it, is they said, you know, when we were doing our spreadsheets back in the 2000s, like the 2000, 2001, 2002, when we did the modeling for PayPal's growth, almost all of us knew that it would actually hit the kind of scale it's hit in the future. And I think they were just, this is their competitive side. They would say, and we knew the company could be bigger than eBay uh, in time, just because of the way the math of the combination of network effects, the existing growth rate, the potential addressable market, the possibilities of of international expansion, international cross-border payments, right? Like all of these things, they actually had had sort of thought through, modeled, and like saw the growth live. And and so in some ways, they're actually, they're not surprised by the scale of PayPal today because they knew what it could have been back then. Um and I, I just, you know, I just didn't engage them too much on the questions of, of what it is today, because I think it's a very different business than some of the other payment businesses that are out there in the world. I think, look, what, what should and can be said about them is they're still standing and there are plenty of brands from that. I mean, I, I got a lot of AOL CDs in the mail, man, and <laughs> I don't use any of them today. Most of those are gone. <laughs> I use PayPal today and I use Venmo, which is owned by PayPal. Yeah. Um, that's, by the way, Absolutely. the other poetic part of the whole thing because obviously like I need to find the the poetic symmetry is, you know, PayPal started out as a company whose ambition was to make mobile device payments a big thing. And they acquire Venmo, which made, you know, which is for a bunch of people in my, my social circle made mobile device payments and a big thing. So everything comes full circle, Miguel. It all fits together. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Uh, Jimmy, I got to ask you before I let you go, um, the some of the members of the PayPal mafia are. I mean, take Elon Musk. I, I think he's the most famous businessman in the world right now. At one point, it was probably Bill Gates a while ago. Now it's it's definitely Elon for most generations, especially young ones. Um, but you were interviewing them six years ago or more, uh, so you've kind of seen this evolution. First of all, are you surprised by this like meteor? This is rise. I, I was gonna say meteoric, but it's it's been progressive. But feels also like a meteor. Um, and what do you think is next for this this group of people? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, you're asking me in a particularly interesting week um, because it was announced on, on Monday that, you know, that Elon Musk will be purchasing, you know, Twitter Incorporated. And you can imagine, like, it's sort of been, like, inundated with, with questions since then. And my, my response to people about that specific thing is, like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, that's my honest answer. Because Twitter is not a payments company and PayPal wasn't a social network. So I'm not in a position to speak capably about that specific thing. But your question is a far more interesting one, which is, like – you know, what do you make of this and these people and their rise at a time, you know, at, at this kind of interesting cultural moment, right? So I'll offer a couple of thoughts on that. Um, I interviewed them about one of the earliest periods in their lives, you know, when they were in their 20s and, and early 30s, and they were kind of just getting started in life in many cases. Elon had had a prior success with Zip2, but for most of the people on the team, this was their first startup and it was a uh, it was you know carried all the the same difficulties that that are true for the founders that you are are interviewing the same hazards the same anxieties the same uncertainties they didn't know they were going to be successful and and i actually think of that by the way as like a hopeful message and here's why because in 1998 and 1999 max levchin and peter Thiel were turned down over 100 times for financing for the company that became paypal and so it, 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 they weren't, you know, they weren't boldface names then. And they had the door shut in their face and they had people laugh in their face. And I don't think it's much, it, it's, it's too much of a stretch to say that's, that should actually give hope to a bunch of people who are in that business now and might be having the door slammed in their face because their ideas are described as crazy. When, when Confinity debuted its PayPal Palm Pilot beaming product, it's referred to by one publication as one of the 10 worst technological ideas of 1999. That company exists today and is worth over $100 billion, right? Like, let, let, let's sort of like have some perspective on, on that trajectory. The, the second thing I think is we tend to misunderstand them as people, as a group. I did not find in this particular group people who – there's a kind of builder instinct, like a creative instinct that I think we often miss. We often miss the earnestness that's at the heart of a lot of these tech stories. Like these are very earnest people. Paul Graham has done some writing on this, by the way, this quality of earnestness. And, and the last thing I would say is that there is a, a, a kind of nerdy, quirky love of technology. And, and I don't think I'm exaggerating much by saying that, you know, to be honest, because part of what I was able to talk to these people about was the video games they were playing in those years. Like what are some of the things around Y2K that were, you know, freaking them out, right? Um, there was a love of technology and what it could enable and the building of it and the provision of it to people that is interesting to these individuals. That doesn't mean they're not thinking about like big philosophical or political questions. It just means that like it's far more interesting to someone like Max Levchin, I think, to uh, to, to be working on like a complex cryptographic question or a, a, a product problem than it is to like really sort of like wade into other waters, right? Like I, I found what might be described as, call it like a tinkerer's ethic. Like there is a tinkering quality. There's this quality of, I see something I really don't like in the world and I'm just going to like fix it. I'm going to build something to fix it because that is just what I do, right? And I found this to be true in person after person. Like it wasn't, and it wasn't restricted to one domain. People have done this in film. They've done it in books. They've done it in, there was, I interviewed somebody who became a professional magician who was an alumnus of this group, right? He built a, a magic business, right? Um, but there was this view that if you see something in the world that frustrates you or bothers you, the thing you ought to do is to try to sort of roll up your sleeves and fix it, right? And and I, I think of that as actually at the heart of a lot of tech, but it's missing from the narratives about these people and about sort of tech broadly defined. The, the last thing I would say is, you know, for every one of these stories, there's a bunch of stories of people who didn't succeed in this way. Meaning, actually, one of the interesting things about reading the context of 1998 to 2002 is you appreciate that, like, there's a very fine line between success and failure and a very fine line between, like, losing all your investors' money and being on the cover of magazines. And so, to, to my mind, it actually makes me, like... It makes me more admiring of technology entrepreneurs who dive into this domain knowing those risks, knowing those hazards, and knowing that like, like it could all be for naught. 
but they're going to try because they've noticed some problem they want to solve in the world. Um, I think we need to celebrate that instinct more um, because I think that a culture will get what it celebrates and it's, it has these sorts of qualities of like creativity, energy, independence. Like there's all of this stuff that's in it that is actually really, really rich and interesting. Um, I don't know if that answered your, your question, but I, I think that for the people in this story, you can't help but be amazed at what they've done. And importantly, given what you said at the top, they're not finished. Like there are companies that these people are building right now whose goal is, you know, here's a great example. There's a company called Terraformation. Terraformation has at its core a number of PayPal alumni. Terraformation's goal is immodest. It is to re, re as far as I understand it, to reforest 3 billion acres of forest ecosystems. Um, and it's doing it through technology. Like that's incredible. Uh, I, you know, I met someone, this woman, Amy Rowe Clement, who was another early PayPal person. She was hired directly by Elon. Elon really lavished praise on her. Her goal, her life goal, her life mission is scaling love. Like she believes that the work she does uh, can help scale love. Um, I, I just person after person, like they're, they're not done, right? So I captured sort of the lightning in a bottle from a specific period. But I think of this as like a group that's going to continue to leave an impression on American society. And some people might say what they're doing is great. Some people might say it's terrible. I, but I don't think any of us can ignore it. Jamie, fantastic. And I don't know if you realize this, but you also took a very entrepreneurial approach because you saw a gap in, in that wasn't covered, you know, of a moment in history that was extremely interesting and you filled that gap with an amazing book. So thank you for that and, and honored that you stopped by uh, the show. Well, thank you for having me. And I will say that in, in getting to know you, I appreciate that I think you share this enthusiasm for this process, for the entrepreneurial process, because you building this entity, you building this podcast, you building this audience is an entrepreneurial process, right? And so kudos to you for even doing this, right? Like what a thing to, to, to start, scale, and have success within the space of, of two difficult years is just incredible. Uh, and I realize like the, the work is a lot longer than that, but I mean the, the sort of last couple of years of, of real growth. Thank you, Jimmy. That, that means a lot. Uh, but but they, I'm, I'm sure the audience is going to love this episode and, you know, it's, it's something different. It's something interesting. And for everyone listening, go and get the book. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jimmy Sonny, author of The Founders. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>